every Tuesday and Thursday I was there, and I, uh, if my clients were up for it, we'd do 45-minute sessions. Um, and, and most of my clients, this was, um, this was their last stop. This is the last place that they were going to live. They were all, uh, they were all staring at, at death. Um, I, I took the job uh, partially because I'd been so uncomfortable in places like that. My grandmother uh, lived in one for several years and, uh, and eventually died there. And, and I was, um, I mean, I visited my grandma, but looking back, I wish I would have gone and spent a lot more time with her. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that part of why I didn't was because I was so uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable with, uh, with my grandma dying. Uh, I was uncomfortable seeing all these other people that, that were dying. Um, so I, I had this opportunity to take this job, and, and I went for it. And it wasn't because the pay was great. The, the pay was pretty, pretty lousy. Um, but but the, the time there was so valuable, and it was an opportunity uh, for me to kind of deal with my discomfort um, in that place and, and, and in that time of life. Um, I, I sat and uh, I listened a lot. I didn't say a whole ton um, through many of those sessions. Uh, There's one woman named Helen, and Helen was a kick in the pants. Uh, Helen was, uh, she was, she was stuck in a wheelchair. She, she couldn't get out of her wheelchair anymore. And I'd come in, and you never knew if Helen was gonna meet with you or not. Um, I'd come in, I'd greet Helen, say, good morning, Helen, how are you? And, and if she didn't wanna meet with me, she, she wouldn't look at me, she wouldn't say anything, she'd just move her wheelchair so that I couldn't like, make eye contact with her. And if I was feeling kind of feisty, I'd move and go, morning, Helen. And then she'd just shimmy the other way and, and that was done. Um, but when she did want to meet with me, she, she greeted me the exact same way. She called me St. Gregory and she'd say, good morning. Oh, and she talked like a pirate too, which was awesome. <laughs> so she'd say, good morning, St. Gregory. It's good to see you. Pull up a chair. I'm not kidding. She sounded like that. It was unbelievable. And she also, she swore like a sailor, which was funny. Uh, and, and in her client file, I found out that she had been a nun. So there's just great irony, the, the potty mouth that, that Helen had. Um, there's a woman named Virginia. Sweet, sweet lady. She um, also was in a wheelchair and um, she was having a hard time. There, there were days that uh, she would just cry. She, she missed the life that she had. She missed her family. She was often pretty confused about where she was. Um, but she had a lot of good days, too. And she'd ask me to just wheel her around. We'd, we'd wheel all over the place. She told me all about her life. She said that when she was younger, she loved to dance. And every once in a while, like when music was going, she would like boogie in her, in her little wheelchair. And, and just like that, the upper part of her body, I'm like, oh, she really could dance. Like she dances way better than that thing than I could dance as an able-bodied person. Um, we, we had times where we laughed pretty hard together. I'll never forget uh, the session when she asked me for a kiss. And I was taken aback, and, and what came to mind was I, I just said, that is not in the treatment plan. Um, <laughs> so uh, she actually, she kept hitting on me to the point where my supervisor was like, yeah, she's off your client load. So they, they gave her to a, a female counselor. Uh, Betty, Betty was my favorite, though. Betty was 94. 
uh, sweet, sweet woman. Uh, she spoke. In talking with her, I think she knew Jesus. I mean, I'm not totally sure, but, but I think she knew Jesus. Um, she, she was... She couldn't get out of bed, and she had just withered down into this, this, this little thing, uh, so precious. Uh, her niece brought in stacks of photo albums uh, at one point, and, and we went through for weeks, we went through picture by picture, page by page of, of much of this woman's life. I'll never forget, she, she had pictures on the opening day of Disneyland. Her husband worked for the Associated Press, and they got into Disney on the opening day. They didn't have kids of their own. They borrowed kids, took them with them. I, it, was, it was great. But we walked through many, many memories of her life. And, and, and then eventually, after weeks, we finished, um, we finished those albums. And, uh, and Betty, Betty was ready to, to be done with life. She was ready to die. And she would stare out the window. And I, a lot of times, I just sat there. And just waited until she was ready to speak. And then she would say something. And, and, and it was like she just dropped this, this little pearl of wisdom for me. And, and after a while of her doing this, I realized like, Betty was trying to impart some of what she had learned in life. She, uh, she didn't want me to have to learn uh, in, in some of the ways that she had to learn things. So, so she wanted me uh, to be able to avoid some of the mistakes that she made, and, and, and she really wanted to help me, and I soaked it up. And chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes kind of feels like that. Um, the first six chapters, uh, in a sense, um, the preacher, who is probably Solomon, gives us his resume. He talks about all the pursuits in life, uh, and, and that they just leave you empty. And these are pursuits that you and I uh, have certainly considered, and some of them we have, we have dabbled in. But I say it's um, the first six chapters are like a resume for him because he didn't just dabble. He, he dove deeply into all of these pursuits, way beyond um, what you and I are even capable of. Um, when it comes to riches, he, he was wealthy beyond what we can imagine. He would make Bill Gates look like a middle-class guy. He partied beyond what any of you have partied. I mean, feasts he would throw for days and days and days. He sought to be entertained. He pursued accomplishments. The man designed and had parks built. It said he planted forests of trees, not, not just a forest, but can you imagine like planting the, the, the Gifford Pinchot National Forest? Like he planted forests. He designed and, and had the, these incredible works of architecture built. When it comes to seeing if sexual pleasure is the answer, his resume is 700 wives and 300 other women on top of that. So now the preacher sits down at the end of a full life kind of like I did with Betty, and he's sharing what he's discovered in his life experiments. The, our truth statement for today is wisdom, uh, and wisdom is good because it helps us to live in view of the reality of death. It protects and, give pa and gives patience through a long-term view of what God is doing. So we're going to hear a lot about wisdom in this chapter, and what we get to do is pull up a chair and listen and sometimes when Betty would tell me some of her, her little pearls of wisdom, 
I'd scratched my head. I didn't know what in the world she was talking about. For a moment, I wondered if she was uh, kind of going crazy. But as I dug in and thought, I understood where she was going. And, and the preacher's that way. Like this chapter, he says some things that, that you're like, what? Do you, you don't mean that. But, but let's dig in here. Verse 1, he says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So chapter 7, it feels like the book of Proverbs, right? It feels like what Solomon wrote in the Proverbs. Verse 1 is akin to Proverbs uh, 22, 1, where he wrote, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Your name matters, right? Our name matters to us. Almost everyone cares about what people think of them. In the Proverbs, he says, a name, a good name, is better than riches. And in, in Ecclesiastes, he says it's better than, than ointment, or think of like really expensive perfume, right? They're, they're walking around, it's hot, the roads are dusty, there's animal stuff all over the place. They did not smell good. And to be able to afford this expensive perfume and smell better was a big deal. But he's saying having a good name is way more important than smelling good. It's more important than the externals. Right? He's saying you can smell great, but what does it matter if people laugh when they hear your name? If people mock you or sneer at the mention of your name? We are a people that care about outside uh, our externals, right? What, what we look like. We, we can work out. We can, we can do the keto diet or Whole30 uh, if we don't want to work, we can pay to have stuff done to our body that makes us look better. Um, instead of caring uh, about character, about integrity, our culture values the external so much. So the preacher, he says, what does that matter? What does that matter if you smell good, but everyone knows you're a fool? You might look great, but your character is a joke. The way you deal with people is a disgrace. Your reputation is so, ma so bad, it doesn't matter how you look. And Jesus talked like this with the Pharisees. You might remember. He, he talked to them about washing the outside of the cup, right? Making the outside of the cup look pristine, and yet the inside is filthy. That they religiously, morally, they looked great externally, but he said, inside you're dead. You're this rotting corpse. Yeah, I know that's a temptation in church, is to come in looking like we've got it all together, but I hope, I hope that churches, I hope that our church is actually a place where you can come in and you don't have to pretend. And I get, like, we don't want to all just lay out all our stuff for everybody to see, but I hope that you come here and, and, and there are people you can be real with. There are people that, that you can pray with. I hope that, that going back to the, the prayer team at the end of the service, it isn't a shameful thing for you, but, but it's a blessing to you. Camus has this reputation of, of trying to look really good on the outside. I assume you know that about ourselves, that that's what other people think. And, and they think it because there is some truth to it. 
right? That the, the people work so hard, families work <clears throat> so hard to look like everything is perfect. But then behind closed doors, things are a mess. Husbands and wives work so hard in public with their persona, but inside, their marriage is a wreck. We spend, or we can spend, all this energy on looking good externally, and yet there's very little depth to us. A good name ought to matter to a Christian, but it's not because of our name. It's because of the name of Jesus. We are ambassadors for Jesus, and our name points to the name of Jesus. What does your name do to the reputation of Jesus? Because everything we do either adds or detracts from Jesus' name. How you handle yourself at school, at business, in your workplace, our parents, with your kids. Like your kids are watching you, and, and how you handle yourself with your kids impacts how they view God and what they think about Jesus. Uh, lately, I've been uh, incredibly impatient with a couple of my kids, and, and um, it's shameful. It, it's shameful that, that they know Daddy preaches, and, and, and we read Bible stories together. And yet sometimes I'm an impatient jerk to my kids. Like I'm impacting how they view God. And we could go into every part of life. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it so much. When, when there's a car with like a Christian little fish on it or a he is greater than I bumper sticker and they drive like an idiot. I hate that. Right? And some of you are thinking, well, that's why I don't have a bumper sticker. <laughs> no. <laughs> don't drive like an idiot. <laughs> Uh, we, we, we can look at, <laughs> preach, uh, we, we can look at social media, right? The, the way, you, your social media, what you put out there, how does that make Jesus look? I was praying through 1 Corinthians 13 this week with some uh, other pastors in the area, and it hit me, like, this is all we need as a guide for how to handle social media as Christians. Right? Love is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not boast. And Christians are blowing it on social media. And I don't mean like primarily younger people. Mature Christians are blowing it on social media. We are not representing Jesus well much of the time. We shouldn't boast about being right. We should boast, Paul says, in the cross. Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Christian boast is that we were sinners that needed Jesus to come and die for us because we were such wretches until he rescued us. That's what we should boast about. He goes on, he says, this is one of those head scratchers, the day of death is better than the day of birth. I remember when my kids were born. I remember holding, holding my kids, like that first time I got to hold my kid in the hospital. Or, 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 or later, like late in the night, as, as they're sleeping on me, and, I, and I'm rocking them. And, and as a parent, I, all you can do is, is imagine what's to come in their life. You, you, you dream, you long for, you wonder, like, God, what are you going to do with, with this little one? So how in the world can the day of death be better than that? Well, a life well-lived a life that isn't just a dream, but actually is fulfilled. On that day, what can be said is well done. It's, it's the exclamation point on a good life. 
Think about Jesus. As, as good as the day was that Jesus was born, the day that he died was better. We needed Jesus to be born, obviously. He, he couldn't die if he wasn't born. But for the believer, the, the day that we die, right, if we put our trust in Jesus, is better than the day you're born because you will stand face to face with your Savior. Do you, do you think about that much? Do you consider that moment from, from going into this life, taking that last breath, and then standing before Jesus? When a Christian dies young, it, it's totally fine to be sad for the people that they left behind. Like, that makes sense. But so often, I think we show that our theology isn't right when we feel like they missed out. Because actually, they're with Jesus now. right? It, you compare those two, they didn't miss out. Now, the daughter that doesn't get walked by her dad up the aisle, yeah, she missed out greatly. Would he have loved to be there? Guaranteed. But man, he's with Jesus now. And that is good. So I hope, I hope that we enjoy this life, the love that, that God gives us in this life, but it doesn't compare to the life that we have coming if we know Jesus. And that's what we boast about. Right, this, is an, this is an upside-down boast. It's a self-deprecating, God-glorifying boast that, that I needed Jesus and I still need Jesus to save me. Death, as, as we'll see in this book, is a major theme in Ecclesiastes. He wants us to look at death. And Christ defeated death. Right? So death for the Christian isn't your enemy anymore. Death can be your instructor now. And we live in a culture, though, that works hard to ignore death as if that's better for us. So instead of saying the word dead or death, we say things like passed away, no longer with us, late, departed, perished, resting, at peace, was called home, crossed over, kicked the bucket, croaked, bit the dust, met his demise, didn't make it, lost their battle, passed on, breathed her last, met her maker in a better place. We want to say all of those rather than they died. Death gets our attention like nothing else. The possibility of death can stop us in our tracks. A diagnosis that might lead to death brings to light what really matters. In, in a moment, what we thought mattered so much, as soon as we hear that there's a chance we might die, it puts all of that into perspective. And we might be able to delay death by months, maybe even years, but eventually death is coming to each one of us. And he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. right? Because this, this is where you're going to end up. So it's good for you to enter that house that's full of people grieving their loss. Grieving the death of a loved one. That's a really good place for you to be. Because someday, people are going to be sitting around at your funeral remembering you and sharing stories about you. He says this is, is better than going to a party, than going to the house of feasting. Man, we can enjoy parties, right? Like I love getting together and celebrating with friends or just, just being in someone's backyard, enjoying a barbecue, right? That, that's good. He's not saying there's nothing good about a party. But man, how deep do you probe your soul at a backyard barbecue? The fool he says, is in the house of mirth. The fool avoids dealing with the hard things in life. 
The fool just goes where he feels good. He numbs himself with the parties, with the barbecues. The fool needs a drink because he doesn't deal with pain. Let's think about what the point of pain is. Pain gets your attention and tells you that something is wrong so that you can deal with it. Right? If you go to the doctor and they're only treating your pain, that's a problem. Because you're dying and there's nothing they can do about it, so they're just trying to make you feel more comfortable as you die. The fool, he doesn't step in the door of the house of mourning. We know the saying that there's no atheists in foxholes, right? The the men and women serving in the military, they know what's on the line. They're, They're forced to think through life and death and eternity. At a funeral or a memorial service, it's hard not to think deeply about life, which the preacher, he says, that's where we're all headed. I've got a number of distinct memories. One of the great things about growing up in church, you go, you go to a lot of weddings and you go to a lot of funerals. Right? I've been to funerals of tons of people I've been to church with through the years. And, you know, I have a ton of memories a ton of distinct moments where, where God used the story of this person or something at their funeral that made me think and grip me. Joel Richter, they're out of town today, but I, uh, I went to his dad's funeral. His dad and I were on staff at a church together. And, and there was a story that was told about Joel's dad as a father. And I will never, I'll never forget it. And, and I was, a, I was a, a, a young father at that point. Um, and, and I just thought, man, I want to be a dad like that. And I, I could point to funeral after funeral where God did stuff in my heart, the funeral of, of my mentor, Clark, just a few years ago. Oh, it was so challenging to my soul. Many of us remember uh, Walter Feb, and part of his testimony was going to his grandmother's funeral and, and, and thinking about death, and considering his life, thinking about mortality, thinking about eternity, and, and that's, that's what brought him to Christ. It was a major component of him coming to know Christ. He says, the preacher says, sorrow is better than laughter. Laughing laughing is great. Laughing has its place. Uh, It's enjoyable. We burn a couple calories while we laugh. There's some physical benefit to laughing. But dealing with sorrow is good for us too. Sorrow makes us reflect. It causes us to think and to evaluate. It can lead to change. When we skip over painful feelings and only live for laughter, or fun, we stunt our growth. I heard someone describe the, the American palate uh, with, with other cultures, and, and he said that we have, uh, we've got a palate for the sweet and the savory, but not so much the bitter. That other cultures, there, there's, there's more of this taste for, for the bitter, and, and he said that's reflected in, in American life. We're, we're so quick to avoid pain and difficulty, which does make sense. I get that. I do it too. But God has given us all the bitter flavors in life for a purpose. This is when our soul is forced to do the heavy lifting. So do you learn from pain? Or do you just run from pain? Do you you numb pain? Do you avoid pain? Verse 5, he says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. You do well to have good friends that will speak hard things to you, that will tell you how it is in a loving, gracious, kind way, but friends that care more about who you are 
than, than about hurting your feelings. Preacher says the song of fools is, is nice. Right? Just like the laughter of fools seems good. In verse 6 he says, but it's like a bunch of thorns burning. I don't know if you've tried to make a, a fire like out of like blackberry bush thorns or something. It might burn hot, but it's going to burn really quick. You certainly couldn't cook over it. If you want to cook, there needs to be substance to it, and there's no substance in the Song of Fools. The Song of Fools sounds nice. It's kind. The Song of Fools doesn't rock the boat. The Song of Fools tells you you're great, that you don't need to work on anything. You do you. The Song of Fools doesn't hurt feelings. The Song of Fools keeps you stuck. And it's because the Song of Fools is either afraid to tell you the truth or doesn't even care enough about you to tell you the truth. So the Song of Fools would never tell you you've got something in your teeth. The Song of Fools wouldn't tell you your fly's down. Do you know people that are that way? They're like so embarrassed to tell someone that their fly's down that they would rather just let them have their fly down. And, and I get that. You feel embarrassed for that person. I know this is funny. I don't know why I thought of this. Um, <laughs> Uh, you feel bad for that person, but instead of helping them, you're going to let them walk like that until someone has courage. This is the song of fools. The, the rebuke of the wise cares about you. They care that you grow. They care more about that than momentarily hurting your feelings or, or having an awkward moment with their friend. The, re, the rebuke of the wise might hurt like you're getting stitches, but it, it helps heal you. The rebuke of the wise has the long term in mind. So do you want to grow or do you just want to feel good? Do you care about maturing even when that means receiving hard news? Where do you get wisdom from? Do you seek out what God has for you in his word? Do you spend more time mulling over the Bible or scrolling through posts or reading and watching the news? Do you seek counsel from wise, mature believers? Do you have relationships with people who've already lived through the life stage that you're in right now? Do you have people that are willing to say hard things to you? And it stinks, sorry about that, it stinks to get rebuked, right? Someone, they come and rebuke me, the first thing I feel is just denial. Like, no, you're wrong. Maybe I don't say it, but inside that's what I'm feeling. And then I want the attention off me, so I'm even tempted to like lash out and say, well, you do this wrong. But then eventually, as that subsides, I'm able, by God's grace, to receive what they said and, and look and, and evaluate. And if it seems like they're right, there's an opportunity to grow there. And it can be tiring, but the alternative is to remain ignorant. So do you have friends that lovingly rebuke you? And if not, why don't you? Or does it mean that you don't let people in your life close enough for them to see your stuff, for them to be able to speak about your stuff? Or is it how you respond to them? Right? If, if, if someone challenges you about something in life, do you tell them off? Or do you consider what they said? Have you ever thanked someone for sharing hard truth with you? Are you a friend that's willing to tell someone about their blind spot? I know it isn't fun, but do you love your friend enough to serve them in that way? We gotta keep moving here. Verse seven, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. 
Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So the preacher's telling us to look ahead. He's saying, look, way down the road, not just the next next few steps, not even just the next few years, but look at the end product. And so often when, when we start a project, it can look messy. It, it, it doesn't look beautiful. Everything looks discombobulated. And, and we can get stuck in that. But when we look at the end product, it helps us push through all of that. And God has the end in view. We know that God is working in messes all the time. And through those messes, we'll produce what is good. His finished product is beautiful. And this world, it feels like a hot mess right now in in so many ways. And if we keep our view exclusively on the here and now, it's easy to be discouraged. But as Christ followers, we have real hope. Believing that God is making all things new, that those who trust in him look forward to an existence that is perfect. We look forward to, to a day without disease, without pain, without sorrow. Can, can you imagine a, a world without tears? We, we know that God is bringing his people to Eden. right? And, and it's not just the original garden. He's making it better. Right? New heavens and new earth will be incredible. When we have the end in view, it's a lot easier to be patient. Seeing the big picture can help us avoid lashing out in anger. Verse 10 says, don't say how good the old days were. This has been a temptation throughout history to look back and say how good the old days were. He says, don't dwell on how good the old days were. The old days had problems. You know what people said back in your good old days? Older people than you said, man, I miss the good old days. Right? It wasn't as good as you think. It's easy to be nostalgic and miss what we had while conveniently forgetting the problems that we had. Solomon's told us there's nothing new under the sun. Right? The problems of today already existed. They might look a little bit different. The form might present a little bit differently. But the essence of the problem has been here since sin entered the world. As Christians, longing for what was is settling for a knockoff. We ought to long for what will be. Longing for the good old days is longing for a time of brokenness, of sin, and pain. You'd never say out loud, man, I miss those sin-filled times. That's what they were. Longing for Jesus' return, that's worth longing for because the best is yet to come. That's worth us praying for. So he says wisdom doesn't ask for the good old days. Wisdom is set on the future, which requires patience. Right? We want things now. We are an impatient society. We have apps on our phones that allow us to order our coffee at Starbucks so that when we get there, it's ready for us and we don't have to stand in the line. We have very little patience. The preacher says, don't be quick to become angry in your spirit, which this is a good test, right? It's it's a good test if you trust God's timing. How you respond when things don't go your way or when things take longer than you think, if you get angry at God, it's revealing that you don't really 
trust his timing. You don't trust his provision. We're not a patient people. We need express lines at the grocery store. Do you remember dial-up internet? Man, if we had to deal with that today, we would freak out. We're often in a hurry simply to be in a hurry. And when we get slowed down, anger can come. So the preacher, he sees our anger and he says it's a sign of foolishness. It's an underlying mistrust of God's timing. We need the Holy Spirit to give us patience and to trust and wait on the Lord. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In some ways, it's surprising that he compares wisdom with riches because he's, he's been pretty hard on, on money and letting us know that money, money will not fulfill us. Money will not satisfy us. But he recognizes that money, money is a commodity that's useful when we have it. He says it can protect us. Money can protect us from some of the hard things of daily life by being able to afford what we need. Philip Reichen, a pastor, writes, Wisdom can protect your soul. It helps us deal with the reality of death. It guards us against the foolishness of rash, of rash anger. It helps us see the long-term view of the world and what God is doing. Ultimately, true wisdom from God shows us we desperately need him. It gets us above the, the below-the-sun thinking and gets us looking to God in heaven Wisdom from God isn't stuck in this life, but looks ahead to what is next. Wisdom is trusting in Jesus as your Savior from sin. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7 real quick. We'll end here. This is a familiar, um, familiar passage. Jesus said this, verse 24. I'll let you get there. Is the wise and foolish builder. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. We got one shot at this life, and our days are numbered. What are you building your life on? Are you building your life on the words of Jesus? Is that your foundation? Or are you ignoring Jesus, trying to make your own foundation, building your own house? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the, the wisdom uh, that Solomon brings us, Lord. And, and here's a man that um, started off great and, and then made many, many mistakes as he pursued all kinds of things. And yet even in that mess, you, you bring about goodness in, in teaching us from him and teaching us through him. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that see the, the pain, the, the difficulties in life, and recognize that even in those you're working, that, that you're working to make us more and more like you if, if we already trust in you, Jesus. Lord, will you help us to be a people 
that live wisely, heavenly wisdom, wisdom that, that longs to know you, to trust you, to live for you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for loving us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.